0: This is the Hidden Wire Podcast episode 1001, my interview with Dr. Michael Presti, and we're discussing insights about the opioid crisis. Enjoy. G'day Michael, welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. Great to have you here with me today.
1: Ah, wonderful to be here, thanks Lee.
0: So I'm um, no, glad, glad to have you here. It's a, it's a really interesting topic. Um, uh, you might be better than explaining it than I am, but it's about opioid uh the opioid pandemic i suppose and and um how we can try and prevent opioid overdoses but what what is your work and and yeah explain to us what you do
1: yeah yeah sure uh so you know i think i think most of us by now are are kind of you know viscerally aware of of how much pain has been caused by the opioid crisis over the last couple of decades in this country uh, and more and more so around the world. So yeah, it is truly becoming a pandemic uh, versus a U.S. epidemic. Uh, and this is, you know, in this country and and largely around the world, we we like to find, you know, the kind of silver bullet answer, right? The the one sweeping thing that will fix a problem. And yeah this is an entrenched complex problem that there's never going to be any kind of a silver bullet, one solution to, right? There's just so many dimensions to it. And so, you know, I think what we're trying to do at SafeRx is take more of a, a root cause analysis approach to looking at what are the main drivers of the crisis and where are the gaps in medical need? In other words, what, what problems are contributing most to all of this pain and damage that we don't have as physicians or as uh, you know social workers or counselors or, or or what have you that we don't have the tools that we need to actually you know effectively address those dimensions. And what we've done at SafeRx is first focus on uh, a particular dimension of the crisis that has to date gone totally unaddressed by the pharmaceutical industry, which is the combination of opioids with alcohol. Um, so. You know, Lee, it's, a, you know, opioids are, I think we all know, they pose a risk, right? There's a risk of respiratory depression. They slow down the central nervous system. And, and when the dose is too high and the response is too big, that's what causes the body to just kind of fall asleep, forget how to breathe and never wake up. So what's, can we uh, just so
0: backtrack a sec here? What, what, is this, what is this epidemic being caused by? Why is this such an opioid crisis right now, from your angle? Uh,
1: Gosh, great. Such a great question. Well, you know, a lot of this is, uh, uh, I think, squarely um, much of the blame falls on uh, a lot of the big pharmaceutical companies that that drove the crisis. And this is in the late 1990s, early 2000s, this push towards... Um, Extended-release opioid formulations that were supposed to be much safer for the patient, and so what ended up happening was y- you got more and more high-dose, high-potency opioids that were. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's actually quite uh, uh, off-putting when when you really look at what happened. Um, so, so this is opioids that are with- giving
0: to us from medical. Uh, for pharmaceutical companies and doctors saying, hey, here's an opioid, take it, this will help you.
1: Exactly. And, so and it's not off-market sort of to...
0: opioid use that we're talking about here.
1: Right. So this is, we're focused on prescription opioid overdose, uh, which which really accounts for a shocking proportion of the opioids when you think that, you know... Do you
0: know the percentage? Like of... all
1: doctors, uh, well, they're changing, and they're, that's an actually a, a very dynamic... Uh, Uh, kind of set of of parameters that's leading to that. Um, And we can dig into that a little bit more uh, in a bit. Uh, But uh, when the CDC prescribing guidelines came out back in 2015, which uh, really pushed for a significant reduction in daily doses of opioids to prescribed patients, unfortunately, what that did uh, was patients who had been titrated to very high doses that needed that much opioid to control their pain, when they were all of a sudden told, look, we're going to have to cut this dose, you know, in half or by two thirds, that when you do that, especially if you do it too quickly, and if you don't introduce alternative Mm -hmm. mechanisms for pain control, massage, acupuncture, chiropractic manipulation, and said, you know, all of the other modalities, which at that time, weren't necessarily covered by insurance, um, mm. you, you really, you, this was putting patients into this place where they're going to the doctor who's supposed to be the specialist to control their pain. And that doc is telling them, I am not allowed to give you what's what you're telling me is needed to control your pain. And so understandably, a lot of them turn to the illicit market. And so what we've seen over the last few years is that a larger and larger proportion of the overdoses and uh, the problems have arisen from people taking medications like heroin or illegal fentanyl that they're acquiring on the illicit market. Uh, And, you know, the pendulum is always swinging back and forth in medicine, right? So we're all eagerly awaiting the updated uh, guidelines from the CDC. Uh, I think a lot of uh, advocacy groups and pain specialists and other stakeholders have weighed in pretty heavily about what the impact of those original guidelines were and so we're expecting that those will will shift uh, you know back towards a putting a personalized needs of the particular patient first and trusting that the doctor can make the appropriate decision uh, with some guidelines that are always helpful right mm. i mean we we want to we want to be able to look at the data through an objective lens, and always be incorporating, you know, that into our clinical practice. So, you know, evidence-based medicine is is the, the catch term for that. Yeah. So, you know, it's a but it, but it really, when it comes down to especially pain, for which you know there's no painometer, right? Like I I can't hook up an electrode to your back and say, oh yeah, you're a 95 pain out of a hundred, and uh, that you definitely need more of the medicine, right? So it comes down to more of a a subjective, you you talk to the patient, you ask them what kind of function they have, if this is helping, you know, you use the scales of how bad is the pain. And you really, you know, a lot of the decisions are based on the subjective feedback that you're getting from the patient. Hmm. So that, you know, that in and of itself makes this a a difficult field to be in because there aren't good objective tests and measures to see, you know, is the pain controlled? Is it not controlled? Um, but you know, so, but even know,
0: then, if we could assess that, are opioids the best way to go? I mean, they're highly addictive, right?
1: Highly addictive. And so this is another you know your your initial question about you know how did this all get started. i I can remember, I'll tell you the day when I was in med school, we had a pain specialist. He was there, he was teaching on a Purdue sponsored educational program and he both lectured and showed us a video that said multiple times that if a patient has a legitimate indication for an opioid analgesic there is far less than a one percent chance of addiction or Mm. any adverse outcomes which could not be further from the truth what we know now is that you know so addiction and tolerance are are two very different things tolerance is universal if you take an opioid and you take it for long enough and you're, you're taking it every day, the amount that's required to get to the same level of pain control increases. gradually
0: increases, yeah. right?
1: And we, we do develop tolerance to some of the other effects in the body, but they develop at a much different rate. So in other words, you know, one of the, the, the scarier and more deadly hazards of opioids is this respiratory depression. If I, for example, were to take you know, a giant 120 milligram OxyContin pill right now, I probably would never wake up, right? Because I don't, I'm not an opioid patient, but a lot of patients that's, you know, over time where they've been titrated too. And so usually it's, it's okay for them to do that. And they're, they're not, you know, they're not suppressing their breathing to the point that they have an adverse outcome, but that tolerance develops to a, Not as robust a degree as the tolerance to the pain control So as you keep titrating and and moving forward you start to get a dissociation between those curves and The further you move along, you know that x-axis if that's the dose the broader the wider that dissociation between those curves becomes Mm. and you definitely start getting into a danger zone where the dose of, of the medication required to provide the pain control is definitely in the range where it's going to be suppressing the respiratory drive, the ventilatory drive, uh, which, again, is is generally the mechanism of death and and overdose. So uh, the the, um, problem with uh, opioids has been driven largely, uh, or at least to a significant extent, by these unscrupulous practices that were in widespread use by the pharmaceutical industry uh, in the early 2000s, to about 2010, um, even to the point where, you know, there was uh, they there was Purdue managed to have something written into the indication in the labeling of Oxycontin. Now, FDA labeling is an exquisitely controlled process. Yeah. you you cannot get onto a drug label that this does something without a robust body of evidence to prove that, right? Mm-hmm. They, with no evidence to prove it, other than quote unquote expert opinion, were able to insinuate into the FDA uh, into the labeling claims that OxyContin is believed to be associated with a lower risk of abuse and dependence because of its extended release profile, for which there was never any data or evidence to support. Turns out, the FDA examiner who put that into the labeling claims, then very quickly left the FDA and went to work for Purdue for a nice big fat paycheck. So, you know- there, So this a is,
0: of talk to us about the FDA, for those of us, and I'm, I'm probably ignorant to exactly what the FDA's role here is, but what is the FDA?
1: Yeah. FDA is the, the Food and Drug Administration in the yeah. United States. So that's the, the agency, the regulatory agency that governs uh, approvals of different medications. So Okay, and you're saying order, that
0: the FDA's got a very rigorous process before anything gets approved.
1: Extremely rigorous yeah. for approval as well as what, what we refer to as label claims. Mm-hmm. So the things in that package insert that you know nobody reads, you throw it away. It's yeah. that folded up thing that's you know twenty pages long. But, you know, docs are familiar with that. We do look at that. Mm. And those are the, that's supposed to be the body of evidence that the, you know, the patient population that it works in, this is the magnitude of the benefit that was seen in the clinical trials. These were the adverse events. These are the risks. So that that's intended to be something that informs the physician's decision-making process about whether you use this medication or not and whether the, mm-hmm. the benefits are going to outweigh the risk. And really... Yeah, that's a question that should be asked anytime any medicine is started in any human, especially if we're going to be putting this chemical into your body every single day for an extended period, right? Yeah. So, so
0: oxytocin was it was then pushed through and um, to uh, help to help deal with the opioid uh, addictions.
1: Well, so oxycodone was already Oxy. approved. Okay. But what they did was the oxycontin which uh, oxycontin. Kind of for continuous release, right? what what they did in that in a nefarious way was without any data and clearly in retrospect which was some sort of you know bribe or other you know back alley kind of agreement mm. with the fda person that was was in charge of setting those label claims and those indications they were able to insert something that was not true that was not supported by evidence that the risk of addiction abuse overdose was lower in uh, the the continuous release formulation of the drug. And so, you know, that was something that the the drug reps would then, you know, pound over and over and over when they were detailing the docs and it created this false sense of, oh yeah, these are much safer. So the point was that there were many levels on which the marketing strategy that was used to really just sell as many of these drugs as possible And, you know, to hell with what the social impact is going to be, to hell with whether it's in the best interest of the patient or not, this is what's going to drive our revenues and our profits. That's what led to, uh, largely to, the the dramatic escalation in overdoses and what we now refer to as the opioid crisis, which since 2017 is officially a national public health emergency in the United States.
0: Wow. Okay. I could so, go off tangent here, but I won't. I'll stay, <laughs> I'll stay on track.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of substrate here. I, I really, uh, I mean, you know, it's a, like I said, it's a very entrenched and multi dimensional problem. And well, I'm interested so, now
0: with the vaccinations that are going on. And ov- obviously, this is maybe outside your field, but um, has the FDA given their uh, approval here uh, for these vaccinations to be uh, administered as they are being globally um, and, and quite in a mandated sort of way?
1: Yeah, the COVID vaccine. So the the Pfizer vaccine was FDA approved. That's what you're referring to? That was
0: only just recently approved, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and And in
0: yeah, your opinion was it. there enough evidence in that?
1: I I yes, I think there was and I think that, you know, they were waiting for a 6 month uh uh data conclusion from mm. the people that were enrolled in the clinical trials. And so that's that's pretty standard. But these were not standard world events, right? We were living through a a largely unprecedented time. And so I thought that they, because a lot of the holdouts, at least in the States, that people, when I say holdouts, people that were reluctant to, or have not yet gotten the vaccination, a lot of that was political for some reason. We, you know, people who leaned a certain way are against vaccines and against masks and people on the other side of the political spectrum are are for them, Mm. even though there's no no reason to conflate the politics with the science here. But um, the point being, uh, the FDA had, you know, hundreds, millions, hundreds of millions of data points from the people that had, you know, in what we would call post-marketing studies, so people that had gotten the vaccine through the emergency use authorization, and you know, for what? nine months, that data was available. Uh, So, you know, I I was very eager for them to sort of get moving on, you know, yes or no, this is approved, or it's not approved, because, you know, we've been putting a lot of a lot of the onus on on the unvaccinated. uh, And I think it's important to remember that It is a, you know, to the people who are, well, I don't want the government to, you know, be tracking me with the microchips that they're putting in these vaccines. Okay, you know, that that's a fringe sort of position. And I don't think there's there's much to argue there. But people who said, look, we have a government agency that is intended to decide whether these things are safe and effective and they have not yet decided. I think that that was a a reasonable position to take. And so... So is that uh, with all the vaccinations
0: now or is that just with the Pfizer? uh,
1: Just the Pfizer was. I believe uh, the Moderna uh, vaccine just applied for uh, full uh, approval.
0: Okay. Yeah, the AstraZeneca one here in Australia is the one that's being administered predominantly, I believe, but then Pfizer as well.
1: Yeah, and and that's you know so so a lot of times they'll do what's called an emergency use authorization that yeah. it, so you can you can you can sell these and market them, but they're basically saying, but you know we we wash our hands of of this if anything any liability, goes wrong. yeah,
0: <laughs> right, which is a concern. Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, while I personally disagreed because, you know, but I'm a scientist and and I can look at data and I can make my own decision and and feel confident that it's an informed decision. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, some of the the institutions that have – been played such a critical role in this country for so many decades and and that have garnered so much trust that i think it's reasonable for the people that aren't in a position to make those you know data analytics on their own i think it's reasonable for them to to wait and see what the the experts say so but i guess yeah, i guess yeah, so if we needed, could
0: go uh, back to the oxytocin is it was it oxycontin, Oxy, oxycontin, oxycontin uh, is- sorry. The, the if we go back political. to that and see how that's gone through the FDA, um, you know, yeah, it's possible again that, that the right people funding things like this, and I don't want to be a conspiracist here, but this could happen again, and we could have another crisis on our hands like the opioid in twenty years' time.
1: Yeah, you know that's a that's a really interesting point, Lee, and uh, I think the more that we privatize. Um, these sorts of functions, the more liability there is for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, w- one of the, uh, I think, biggest tragedies, at, you know, irrespective of, of where you fall on the political spectrum and, yeah. uh, you know, who you voted for for president and whatnot, you know, one of the, the, the really uh, tragic things that that happened politically in this country over the last four years was that there was such erosion of confidence in the institutions that have been so stellar, uh, like I said, for decades in this country. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, the G-men at the FBI were were the deep state and, you know, they were plotting to overthrow this (laughs) and that. And, you know, and and, uh, the EPA is, is not really trying to protect the water that you drink. And, you know, I mean, these are things we should be able to, you know, take for granted. Honestly, like, you know, you live in Michigan and you've got a little kid and, you know, you should be able to go drink water from the faucet and not get brain damage. That's going to limit his his lifelong potential. Right. But because there was a a private for profit company that was insinuated into that process that Mm -hmm. decided, hey, we'd save a bunch of money if we stop putting this thing that, you know, causes the lead to come off of the pipes into the water. (laughs)
0: yeah so when it becomes about profits rather than the protection of the people that's when we can have some issues and i guess that's where maybe the public is concerned right now but um going well off track here going back to the opioid (laughs) epidemic uh, pandemic epidemic epidemic yeah yeah
1: epidemic uh, you know and again i think it is it is becoming a worldwide worldwide problem so um, soon enough if not already i think well i don't see it it i don't see it
0: I mean, I don't hear of it or notice it, and I probably don't put my attention there either here in Australia. But over in the states, I mean, I mean, it's huge, isn't it? The overdose of opioids. It's
1: it's monumental. Lee. and has it gotten uh, bigger uh, with this
0: year, with this crisis as well?
1: It's gotten so much worse. So last year, the the provisional data that was released by the CDC through their Vital Statistics program showed that last year we were at just under seventy thousand opioid, specifically opioid-related overdose deaths, like 69,700, something like that. That's higher than we have ever, much higher than we've ever had in a single year all throughout this crisis. And a lot of that was driven by the fact that with reduced access to care, with, uh, people turning more to the illicit market, you know, the flooding of illegal fentanyl, et cetera, that's, that's been flooding the streets that accounted for a very large proportion of these, but still the number of people that are dying from a medicine that's prescribed from a doc mm. is still staggeringly high. And, you know, we all take an oath, right? It's, it's one of the, 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 most fundamental parts of what we say we're going to do with our careers, which is we're going to do no harm, right? Mm. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to harm our patient. And, you know, that's that simplifies things a little bit because, you know, if a patient has cancer and needs to get a surgery or they're going to die from the cancer, there's a risk of the surgery, right? They might be harmed in it. But the point is, you we're always supposed to be balancing risk-benefit and prioritizing the importance of not harming our patients. And so from that standpoint, to you know, look at how many people are dying from prescription medications, meds that are coming from a doc. It was just hmm. for me, from a professional level, just unacceptable. And that was that was one of the forces that led me to start SafeRX. The other was was from a more personal level, uh, and this was in the very early days of the opioid crisis, uh, 1999, uh, New Year's Eve. A dear, dear friend of mine in the prime of her life, uh, beautiful, wonderful, talented, smart, funny, just buoyant person, Andy she went to a new year's eve party she took her prescribed dose she had an ankle injury her doc prescribed her Mm -hmm. a dose of oxycontin she took the prescribed dose of oxycontin and had a few drinks at this party and again that when those two substances are combined in the body at the same time opioids and alcohol Mm -hmm. they induce this what's called a synergistic response so you can think of it as like a Instead of a 10 plus 10 equals 20 type of an effect, you get more of a 10 times 10 is 100 type yeah. of an impact on the mm-hmm. system, right? So there's much more intense suppression of the nervous system, suppression of the breathing drive, uh, and she fell asleep and never woke up. And so, you know, that was something I carried along uh, very close to my heart for, for quite a
0: while. That's gone back a couple uh, of decades now.
1: Yeah, yeah, a couple of decades, um, and you know, this was finally I, I had a an event. You know, like so many of the the important things in life,ly I, I think it it arises as kind of a confluence of heartbreak and serendipity, right? Mm. Like the heartbreak was with Andy, and, uh, and and after her, I actually there were two other friends of mine that that not as close but pretty close friends that passed again from prescription opioid overdose. Wow. and yeah. And uh, oh, and just to, you know just to, to hammer home a point here, this particular mistake, this specific dimension of the opioid crisis that we're targeting at its with our alcohol-resistant opioids, this accounts for another death in this country every two and a half hours, all year long. right? So I, mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people who die because they make this all too common mistake, that docs currently have no way of preventing their patients from making. So the patient always gets the education. They get the warnings, you know, and, and not just from the physician. Usually, the prescri uh, the pharmacist who's dispensing the medication will will go through the importance of that. Hmm. Usually, it's it's stamped in a bright yellow, you know, sticker right on the bottle in all capital letters: "Do not drink alcohol with this medication." But what the data shows is that more than a third, anywhere from thirty six to eighty one percent of people who are on long term <laughs> opioid. <laughs> But you're not on a on an opiate.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But you know, <laughs> so, like but, with antibiotics or things like that, you know. Yeah.
1: Well. Well. True. Right. And you know, so you know, if you drink with your metronidazole, which is also a partial aldehyde dehydrogenase inhibitor, like the the in our in our uh, medications, uh, yeah, you'll get you'll get really sick and you'll feel lousy, but it's not going to induce this synergistic response where you stop breathing. Right. Hmm. So yeah, there are, there are a lot of drugs that you don't want to drink with because it can cause a, a reaction. But, um, the, the ones that are central nervous system depressants like benzodiazepines, opioids, barbiturates, those compounds are extraordinarily dangerous when they're mixed with alcohol because again, of this, this synergistic reaction that, that develops. Um, and so, You know, with that being the the target, we've developed this platform of what we refer to as alcohol resistant opioids. Uh, Very simple concept. They're combination products, so they're two in one pills. In addition to the opioid analgesic of choice, we're starting with 104, we added an effective dose of this medication called disulfiram. Disulfiram is an FDA approved alcohol deterrent. If it's in your system and you consume alcohol, within about 10 minutes, you're in a a world of pain. You're not having a fun time anymore. Uh, What it does is it interferes with uh, an intermediary uh, enzyme involved in the metabolism, in the breakdown of alcohol. And so when you inhibit that enzyme, you get a buildup, of the product that the enzyme converts. So in this case, it's it's something called acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is uh, like, basically, it's the stuff that hangovers are made of, right? So uh-huh. you, you you block the enzyme, you get this really robust increase in the acetaldehyde concentrations is within about 10 or 15 minutes. And that induces this really noxious constellation of effects. So. First, you get flushed and sweaty, and then you get dizzy, and the room starts spinning a bit, and then you get a pounding headache, and then you get this severe nausea and vomiting. right? And at that point, it's kind of hard to keep drinking. <laughs> so, so the party is over, so to speak. Uh, so what these medicines will do is, number one, they prevent the patient from drinking to the point of increasing their blood alcohol concentration, which when combined with the opioid, is going to put their body into yeah. that danger zone. Mm-hmm. And it also is, a, is a, like, a reminder, hey, let's not do this again in the future, right? So it, it gives the patient a very straightforward choice. Look, if you've got a severe pain condition that requires an opioid, by all means, take the medication your doctor prescribed, but take it as your doctor prescribed. Without alcohol, you can either take it the way your doctor prescribed it, or you can drink but you can no longer do both or you're going to get really sick really quickly. Simple as that.
0: Hmm. If these opioids and this, this, you know, medication, I get it, if people are in severe pain, then yeah, it might be a wise idea, but if these have all been approved and they're being administered as they have been for the last couple of decades or more, isn't there an issue there with what we're approving? Like there's, there's obviously clear addiction associations with, with the opioids, and yeah, then there's clear yeah. consequences that if people without the right knowledge or, or with the knowledge and just without the right processes, which most people can't have because if you'd like to drink and you go to a party and you're on opioids, you're probably going to do it anyway. There's a big problem there.
1: Yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, the, the question about opioid overprescribing prescribing is definitely a problem that needs to be addressed through, uh, like most of these things, through a multimodal approach. Um, th- but I want to be careful here because we, there, there are a number of chronic pain conditions and patients who suffer with chronic pain who do not achieve adequate pain control with anything other than an opioid. Right. These are by far the most potent analgesics that are available to the human body. And so
0: what percentage of the, the U.S. population do you think are, are prescribed opioid use? Uh,
1: great question. Uh, so the percentage is, is um, you know, it, it has changed a bit over the last few years. And again, that has to do with more people going to the illicit market. Uh, it's probably about 10 to 15 percent, um, but of those, the the patients who you know the guy who goes in and gets the wisdom teeth removal and and has you know opioids prescribed for two or three days or something like that, you know that's that's the minority. When we're when we're talking about the quantity and where are most of these opioids going, most of them are going to what we call chronic opioid patients, patients that have chronic pain that are getting the re- prescription filled every month, 12 months a year, and and for years and years on end. Mm. And those are the patients in which that tolerance develops that we were speaking about earlier, where the danger zone for overdose and other adverse events increases exponentially. Uh, and they're the patients that, at least based on the data that's out there, are most likely to ignore their physician's recommendations to avoid alcohol with it, right? So if your doc tells you, hey, we're going to start this new thing for a few days while, you know, you're recovering from that broken ankle. You really can't drink on this or, or you know, you might die. It, hmm. The chances are, you're probably going to take that to heart and, and not drink for a few days, right, while you're on the medicine. But the people who are taking it every day, years on end, it, you know, it's just we nowadays we get so inundated with all of these warnings, right? There's warnings about everything. And some of them, frankly, are asinine, like, if you're allergic to m Gallaty, don't take M-Gality. Oh, well, thank you. You know, like, let me stop listening now, right? Because, you know, that was an obvious thing that some lawyer that was trying to make sure that we were not exposing ourselves to liability said we needed to include into the warnings. And so, you know, I, I think we we do get bombarded with a lot of this and not just from a medical legal standpoint, but, you know, in terms of, you know, all of the, the aspects of our daily life and, and interacting with corporate America or what have you, you know, we're, we're signing waivers and we're accepting liability or we're accepting uh, warnings and things like that all the time. And, mm. you know, often, you know, always just scroll to the end, accept, boom. And so, you know, there's some level of desensitization, I think, to some of the warnings that we get.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But
1: yeah, but this is one that, that you know the d- data definitely shows that it's it should be you know pumped out there loud on the on the on the you know, the PA system because it's uh, it's definitely something that uh, again is all too easy a mistake to make and all too commonly a fatal mistake.
0: Mm. Mm. So there might be a better way uh, to allow these people in in severe pain to have opioids without um, the consequences of overdose.
1: Right, reducing the risk. So, so again, you know, we're not we have not developed a silver bullet for the opioid crisis. What we have developed is a solution to a major dimension of this crisis that has to date gone totally ignored by the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. So this is per the CDC. That which is uh, the sort of the, the gold standard in terms of epidemiology, epidemiology being the, you know, the science of you know, how many people die from what causes, kind of so it's like statistics about health outcomes and, and what's driving those outcomes. So based on the CDC data, gold standard data, 22.1% of prescription opioid overdose fatalities occur not because the patient is, you know, crushing up the pill and snorting it, or dissolving it and injecting it into their vein, or because they're taking a big handful of the pill. It's because they make this all too common mistake of drinking alcohol while the opioid is in their system. So, and that's almost a quarter, right? So it's a major dimension of the crisis. And it's something that you know. While it's not going to be the end-all, be-all answer, would save again a, another Perhaps life. A, in this kind a part of, of, of the about solution. Every two and a half hours, thousands mm. of people per year.
0: Yeah. So the company SafeRX, uh, Michael. If they, if people listening to this episode want to find out a bit more about your company or research, how can they best do that?
1: Thanks for that question. Uh, yeah. So SafeRXPharmaceuticals.com. Uh, you don't even have to type the www anymore. Uh, HTTPS, I think. Uh, and uh, we've also, you know, if, if listeners, um, you know, want to join us in this mission and, and want to, you know, become a part of the solution or part of a solution and uh, want to invest in the company, we recently opened a crowdfunding uh, uh, campaign. Uh, and information for that can be found at uh, www.investinsafeRx.com. Nice one
0: cool insightful interesting topic um thanks for uh coming on the show today michael and sharing appreciate it
1: thank you thank you lee and let me tell you also uh i really like the name of this show it's it's a very evocative uh title you know the hidden why i think it's uh it's a question that most of us are asking and don't even really know that we're asking it so it's uh or, or it gave me a little kick. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Thank you, Michael. And guys listening, uh, as always, you know where to go,
2: thehiddenwide.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to, The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwhy.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well